Um, I am, uh, I'm excited. I'm pumped up. You know this from last week if you were with us. Uh, I'm excited for the series that we're just starting off. Uh, I've been excited for this for uh, maybe almost a year now when it got put on the calendar. But it's a series called He Said What? Um, but it's even more than that. It's, he's, he said what? You know? <laughs> It's these crazy sayings of Jesus, things that, you know, we'd love to be able to skip over except for the fact that in a lot of Bibles, it's in red letters, like jumping out at us that we can't ignore it. Just bizarre statements. I'll tell you, one of the reasons why I love the series, why I'm so excited about it, is because it's so bizarre. Like, like there's so many good qualities of Jesus, so many, like, not so many platitudes of Jesus that, that have this depth of wisdom to it. So many sayings of Jesus that you could easily see and maybe have seen like cross-stitched on your grandmother's like living room hanging on the wall. There's so many things of Jesus like, uh, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. And you could ponder that and think about that all day and it just blows your mind. So many deep wisdom of Jesus. There's also these like quirky and bizarre sayings that nobody ever cross-stitches and hangs on the living room wall. And I love it because it just shows how very real this story is, right? I mean, nobody in their right mind w- would ever make, something, make up a story like this and include things like um, eat my flesh and drink my blood, the one that we're going to get to today. And you're like, you've got to be kidding me. Nobody in their right mind would ever like, create a story, a Messiah story like this, and make it up to say, yeah, I think you should pay your taxes. No, you, you, if you're trying to start a movement, you say just the opposite of that, right? To kind of gather people around and you start to kind of say things like instead of take up your cross, you say put them up, your enemies up on crosses. But just by the very fact that these bizarre stories, these bizarre sayings are in here and are put in the mouth of Jesus shows like, you know, I don't know, he said it and I'm the guy who wrote it down. So I wrote it down and it just shows how very real all of this is. Um, but before we, uh, we get to uh, the, the crazy saying of Jesus um, this week, uh, we have to see maybe a little bit of the, uh, the context of the movement that this is happening. We're going to open up. We're going to get to John uh, chapter 6 in just a minute. But the chapter starts off, and uh, you could say that Jesus' stock has never been higher. <laughs> People are flocking to him. There's crowds. Uh, John uh, starts off with uh, the first miracle of Jesus is a party miracle. It is uh, as a miracle where he's at a wedding feast, and some of you get upset about losing like a Saturday on your weddings. These wedding feasts lasted weeks long. <laughs> Imagine that one. Uh, part of the party was that they were starting to uh, run out of wine, and so Jesus steps in and he says, Pour, fill up these buckets of water, very large buckets, and pour them out, and it pours out wine. And not bad stuff, but good stuff. And so you can imagine this starts, this starts to attract people to Jesus. Like, I don't know, I'm going to hang around him, see what's next. Um, after that, his stock cons- continues to rise, so to speak. There's a few, uh, there's a few healings. One of them, you know, he heals like the down and out the poor too, w- which is good. But, but what really attracts the crowds is when, in John, he, he, he heals a royal official's sick boy. I mean, that's the kind of thing that now you start to get more than crowd. Now important people start to pay attention to you and start to follow after you. Later on in John, just before our story, in John chapter 6, he says um, there's a story of feeding the 5,000. 
or uh, feeding the at least 5,000, 5,000 men. And then there's women and children on top of that. A time when maybe that many people have never been fed before without commercial ovens and you know, transportation, refrigeration. It's, it's incredible. If living in that day, you're constantly wondering, where's my next meal going to come from? When am I going to get something to eat? What am I going to eat? How is it going to get here? And he goes ahead and feeds just massive amounts of people. Again, in John chapter 6, um, he walks on water. It gets to the point, it gets to the point where after he feeds the 5,000, there's this line in John 5, uh, six fifteen: um, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The stock, his stock is rising so high here that they are now forcing him, going to be forcing him to become their king against his will. Moving on. After the uh, walking on water, you now it happened in the night, there was a storm, you know, the, they wake, the people wake up, the disciples had, you know, they saw them leave on the boat, Jesus was here, they get up, um, all the boats are still here, Jesus is not, and somehow he finds his way across the lake. They get up, and at the end of that story, it says, so the, the people, the crowd, they got into boats and went into Capernaum in search of Jesus. Now they're searching for him, they're looking for him. This is mob, right, this crowd looking after him that he can't even get away from as he tries. And so seeing what's going on, seeing his, uh, his popularity level just screaming high through the roof, Jesus turns to the crowd and he starts to speak to them. And what he says is, uh, is a tough word to hear. Let's uh, pick it up in uh, John six forty one. It's uh, going to be on the... Uh, on the screen behind me, and we'll just read a, a good chunk of the uh, passage and make some comments on it here. Um, at this, the Jews began to grumble about him, and he said, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, uh, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one has come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws them. And I'll raise them up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, this will all be taught by God. Uh, Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes from me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Uh, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. This all makes sense. I mean, he's he's sort of making a, a serious divine claim, but, but so far, this isn't what really makes us scratch our heads. Verse 48, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. Okay? But here's the bread that comes down from heaven. Now, we don't have, like, gestures, but, you know, we'll get there. Which people may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Are you, are you saying what I think you're saying? The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? I wish we had the emotional tone of the words that are used here. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And just to make this abundantly clear, verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. For, and just running with this way too far, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds uh, on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. (laughs) The statements that he makes here, I mean, awkward, I don't think even quite begins to describe it. They're thinking about food all the time just because of the time and day in which they live. And now he, he makes this comment like, hey, you remember, you remember the stories that you grew up on, you know, to the crowd. He goes, you remember you, that you grew up, your parents, your grandparents, he says, your ancestors told you the stories about how they were out in the wilderness and walking around, and, and you thought you had it hard now. They had nothing to eat, and there was nothing around, and God sent bread from heaven. I am, I am from heaven, and now I'm here with you offensive enough, taking it one step further. No, no, no. I'm not only the bread. I'm the bread. And it's just this way over the top. I was in my office uh, earlier this week, and I was trying to like, you know, this is just, it's so quirky. It's so bizarre that he runs with this metaphor so far, you know, to the point of awkward, and then he takes it like 10 steps further and keeps going on it. And I'm like, you know, what's that like? You know, like jokes that just people run with too far, and it's getting really awkward. You know, maybe I could tell one of those jokes. And I'm like, this is a terrible idea. Why would I ever do that to you people? (laughs) But you can probably think of your last family reunion when your uncle maybe told one of those. And you just want to just put your, you know, hands over your head and just say, Why, Jesus? I mean, things were going so well. Jesus, they wanted to make you king. That's kind of what we're going for, isn't it? People are now upset with him. And as we'll see in just a minute, they're upset to the point of questioning whether or not they even want to be uh, associated with him. I'm kind of wondering, as I read this, and maybe you are too, why? Why would he push the people so far to the breaking point of, of of walking away? I think there's a good reason for that, or at least there is a reason for that, but I think it's caught up in why the message was so offensive in the first place. And it has to do with eating flesh and drinking blood. Don't get me wrong. Um, by the way, true story, after this, um, after all this happened and, and years down the road, um, when the, the, uh, the Rome, the government, starts persecuting Christians, and uh, you could say persecuting, they were also prosecuting Christians, right? They had kind of a, a loose legal system that they like, ran people through. Okay, you're a Christian, you're guilty of X, Y, and Z. Now we're going to put you to death. And this all happened very, very quickly. Some of the crimes that they're accused of committing was, uh, number one, it was atheism because they, the Christians did not believe in the Roman deities, the Roman gods, the pantheon. Um, uh, number two, um, incest, 
because of they calling each other brother and sister all the time, and they found that completely off-putting, as I can imagine. And number three, not making this up, cannibalism. Because of what their God said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. So they got atheism, um, um, you know, cannibalism and incest. Like these people, there's no place for them. And so they, you know, hurt them all up and put them away. I just want us to see how, like, offensive this was in the culture. But not only because of the statement, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And not only how many times he runs with it. It's not just once. But there's also that claim about being the bread, being the, the manna, like in the desert, the forefathers that came from heaven. There's also the claim to say, I have come from heaven, and I can tell you things that you've never heard before because nobody has ever come from where I have before. Now, they had this uh, concept, this idea that God must be far, far away from here. You know, that, that God was this uh, very limited being in, in where he was and the space that he occupied. They had an idea that he was in the temple or in the tabernacle, and he was limited there. He wasn't kind of everywhere ubiquitous. He was there. He was in heaven. He was far away. And that's, to be honest, how they liked it. Jesus claims not only he's from heaven, he's God coming here. Along with that claim that he's from heaven, he uses this quirky little statement a couple of times here. In verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Now, we don't quite get it, like pull it out in a translation like this, but the wording that he uses is even more awkward than that because he, it's, it's literally, I, I am the bread. And it's this odd little repetition. And even in their own language, in, in the Greek, it was an odd repetition that you're like, this, this doesn't quite jive. And the words are ego, me, I, I am. And he's like, you don't need both of those, man. You get just the one will do. He does this seven different times in the book of John. These quirky little, like, I, I am the vine. I, I am the bread. I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, I am the good shepherd. I, I am. And he just lists them right out uh, throughout the book. Quirky little statements to us, wildly offensive to them, because they remember those stories, those stories about wandering around in the wilderness. They got wandering around in the wilderness because of the leader was called by God in front of this burning bush, long story, and God says, or and he says to uh, Moses, uh, I want you to lead my people out. And Moses says, reluctantly, I'll do it. Who, who should I say sent me? And, and God's voice from the bush says, tell them I am sent to you. And so God was known from that point on as the I am. And now Jesus in the book of John seven times says, I, I am the good shepherd, the vine, the bread. He is God. He's from heaven And the most offensive thing about it was that God 
was not far away, was not limited to the temple. He was here, and he was flesh, and he was blood. I think Jesus runs with this so disgustingly far. And it is, right? It is disgustingly far. I, I wanted to find some words like the, you know, the Greek words that sort of softens it. You know, maybe he like, switched a different word for, for eating in there you know, at the last minute, but it, it's actually just the opposite. He talks about eating, which is this word, uh, fago, unrelated to the uh, soda pop company. And I looked into it. And uh, <laughs> he, runs, he runs with that for a while. And it's just like the normal eating verb until he gets to this, you know, when he, when he goes just really over the line in verse 54, wh- whoever eats my, and that one eats, he switches the word to, to trogan or, or trago instead of uh, fago. It's a, it's a word that doesn't just mean eat, it means devours. It, it's, it's reminiscent of the sound that an animal makes when it's ravaging apart its dinner. Unless you feast on, unless you devour my flesh and blood. If anything, he goes so far. But what I was saying, I think he runs with this so disgustingly far because he has to hit home as as hard as he possibly can, just not how far he is, just how close he is. That this religious system that we're participating in, Christianity, is unlike any other religious system that has come before or has come since. This system is so completely different because it's not about how we get to God, but it's about how God already came to us. And even to the point of really making us feel uncomfortable, this is the extent to which he would go to to make his presence so uncomfortably close. Now, this is going to make sense because to them later on, on the night that he was betrayed and then shortly after uh, crucified, died, came back to life and ascended into heaven, one of the last things he said before all of that happens was, hey, this, taking the bread, this is my body. And, And this, taking the cup of wine, this is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. He's like, gotcha. Okay, he's talking about like the, the bread and the wine. And, and we've kept that for 2,000 some odd years ever since. We've, we've maintained doing that, and we'll do that a, again a little bit later in the service today. It's going to make sense. But at the first point, he's like, wait, I, I'm uncomfortable. We have to say they're uncomfortable because God is drawing close. First word, last word. I know we say this like probably once a month, but we open our services with the first word. We close our services with the last word. Always hearing from words of God from the scripture because God always has the first word. Here, God has the first word. Coming close to us even to the point of it being disgusting, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, it it does that because he's stepping toward us, making his presence known. All right, we could end it on there. But we're not going to. 
Because I think it's key in verse 59 when he says, he said this while they were teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. I think it's important that the, uh, John, the author here, tells us that they're in the uh, synagogue because they're inside. There's presumably walls and pillars. There's stuff to hide behind as this gets weird. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> Who can accept it? Sorry. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if uh, you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Or Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. It's hard. Jesus opens himself and says, This is me. I'm not far away, I'm not in a box in the temple. Your God is standing in front of you. And now I'm asking you to to take all of me in. And the people were so offended, so put off by this, that they start to walk away. Now, I I would understand, right? You got a crowd, you got people around, they've seen the water to the the party miracle, they've seen, you heard about the walking on water, that's kind of amazing. They've seen the healings or heard about the healings, they've been fed miraculously, and I could imagine this big crowd of loosely committed people, and I could see how as soon as this starts to get weird, they jump ship. What's harder for us to understand is that it wasn't just random people in the crowd who walk away. It was disciples uh, or students. It was, it, were, it was people who were following after him. And you just imagine this scene in the temple. And when he starts saying these bizarre, out there, outlandish remarks... And the crowd starts to disperse. And then even, even people who were along from the very, very beginning, right, they start to walk away. And he looks at the 12 and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Do you? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if one or two of them said, you know, honestly... This is way outside my comfort zone. I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about leaving. I'm thinking about taking off. Maybe it's not wildly offensive to you that God would come so radically close to you. 
Maybe it's not even bizarre for you to think that the God of the universe cares so deeply about your Sunday afternoon that he's willing to spend it with you. My hunch is, my suspicion is that, that by now in our culture we've grown, we've grown to appreciate that about God. That he is this close to us. Which is why I think it's so important that we go on to see that people start walking away. As soon as this gets hard, they pack up shop and go home. I think it's important because even if you're comfortable with the idea of God drawing near to you, there's just you have to know that there's something about God, there's something about Jesus Christ that you're not going to like that's maybe offensive to you. And you're going to be tempted to just say, maybe it's not worth it. That at some point or another, I can promise you that this trip, this journey of discipleship is going to get hard. And you're going to think about packing up shop and walking away. And you can imagine Jesus asking you those words. You don't want to leave, do you? I think for a long time, it's, it's easy to be a Christian. In fact, uh, speaking personally, um, for the first, I'll, I'll say, 25, 26 years of my life or so, the social pressure has been on me to be a Christian than not to be. You know, it, if you're blessed to be in that kind of a, a setting, it, it's just amazing to think about that. That the, you know, my friends growing up, we used to go to church together. I mean, for, like, to hang out into their, like, different youth groups and things like that. It's just, it's crazy. The people that were in my life, you know, influencing one way or another, they, they were influencing me toward Jesus, not away from him. The, the social pressure was, and then I go to a Christian college, and my wife and I, Kristen and I, met on a mission trip. Like, how much of a stereotype can you get? <laughs> And then I decided to go to seminary, and, and literally all of my neighbors were not only Christians, but they're starting, they're studying to be pastors. I mean, what a bizarre subculture that is. There's this pressure to be a Christian, you could say. Maybe you've had some of that experience too, but at some point, that ends. At some point, following after Jesus is more, different, more difficult than not following after him. For for me, it was on the tail end of seminary as I'm getting ready to graduate and kind of, you know, be on with my life and who knows what. And I already knew by becoming a pastor, there's somewhat of a heavy glass ceiling like already on me. Like I just can't be the guy who rolls up in a like bright orange Camaro, you know, to church on Sunday. Like I get that, you know, I've accepted it. But, you know, one of the nice things about you know, being a pastor is like to some extent you have a lot of job security, if you're willing to move around, like there's a lot of places that would take you in. And so I thought, okay, this is the deal that I'm signing up for. I can do that. And my wife and I, we started feeling this call to start a new church. And there's, honestly, there's this, these moments of anxiety with that and moments of anger where you're saying, God, like the one, the thing that I had going... <laughs> was to a reasonable extent some job security. Why are you trying to take that away? The moment that following what God wants is more difficult than not 
came for me. This is going to be bizarrely specific, but on M6, getting onto 131 North, it hit me. I was like convicted in a sinful kind of way that, that the song came on the radio, Your Grace is Enough. We've, we've done it a, a few times here at church. When, when I had this like realization that I'm trying to live by myself, for myself, depending only on myself, when I ought to be living on him. And I, like, I remember it so specifically because I had to pull off from the road. I just tears in my eyes when I just realized, you know, how far from God I really was when I was supposed to be closer. And the realization that this is much, much harder than what I ever thought it would be. And I'm guessing there's a few of you who had to pull over at times too. Thinking that you work for a great boss. And he's a Christian. And he cares about how to treat the employees. Until when it really comes down to it and you say, you know what? I can't go on the trip. I've been away from my family too much already. And you find out that they would rather you just forget about the family. <laughs> Completely. And you say, that, that's not in the system. That's not what I'm like told how to behave and, and what to do. And there's this, this tension driving home from work when you realize that following after Jesus at some point is much more difficult than not following after him. It gets to be very, very difficult. If you haven't had the experience yet, I promise you will. And then what? And then what? When Jesus says, now that it's gotten hard, you don't want to leave too, do you? One of them, Simon Peter, answered him. Verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I, I want that to ruminate, to think. To whom shall we go? It strikes me that when you're invited to follow after Jesus, when you're invited to experience God at the table, you're also invited to leave something behind. You're invited to leave your sinfulness behind, your brokenness, your garbage, your junk behind. It stands to reason that when you're leaving Jesus, subconsciously or, or consciously, when you're walking away from Jesus, when you're leaving, you also go back to something. When you have this moment, and maybe it's going to be this week, of you don't want to leave, do you? Ask yourself that honest question, to whom will I go? Where will I go? If you've got uh, questions about faith or about the world, and how it doesn't make sense, 
And I'm not getting all of the answers that I need from coming to church or from reading the Bible or even reading what smart people wrote about the Bible. I still have these lingering questions. And, and maybe there's too many questions. Maybe I need to uh, just walk away from the whole thing. You don't want to leave too, do you? I was kind of thinking about it. Yeah, where, where will you go? I'm not saying that all the problems are all wrapped up with a nice bow around it, but I'm saying that anywhere else you go won't have all the questions answered either. Where will you go? The, you know, churches full of uh, hypocrites and sinners and broken people, present company included, right? If I can speak on behalf. And you know what? Maybe I'm done with it. Maybe it's just garbage. Maybe I don't want to have anything to do with that group anymore. Just quick question. Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go where there isn't sinful, broken people? The church doesn't do enough. You know, people following after Jesus, there's still hungry people in the world. Why, why can't we get everybody fed? You're right. But where will you go that will feed them all? This morning, um, I'd like us as a community to answer that question. Where will we go by approaching the table? Jesus said, this is my body this is my blood. Do this. <laughs> he made it uncomfortably clear to us that he is uncomfortably close to us. Let's answer together, to whom shall we go? Let's together as a community approach the throne of God, the Lord of grace. Um, I want you to stay seated and uh, we'll pray together and then there'll be some instructions for, for how we do this. Um, as we approach the table, keep those words in mind. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, the uncomfortable closeness of our Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, uh, you are... You are convicting us all the time. You are drawing near to us, Lord, in ways that, honestly, we don't always even want. Uh, Lord, we know that you're watching over us. You're watching out for us. God, give us uh, the humility and the wisdom to see that you are full of grace and truth. And we ought not to be uncomfortable with your presence. Lord, help us to bask in it, to experience and love your glory. Amen.